Yeah, we are uh, back again. Uh, so, Prabhuha, you wanted to comment on this independence of thinking. Uh, yeah. So please go ahead. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know when we talk when we talk about um, some of these uh, great figures, whether it is uh, Chankaracharya, Vivekananda, um, um, Ramana Maharshi, a lot of these people that we have canonized, even um, even uh, rishis and um, kind of ancient legends. Uh, oftentimes they rose to prominence because they provided a new interpretation or uh, they disagreed or challenged the prevailing ideas at the time. Shankaracharya became uh, so well known because he engaged in debates all throughout India with his contemporaries and because he was challenging not only the status quo but the other ideologies and ways of thinking at the time and that is you know how we have all these records of his writings and teachings is because of this dialogue that existed this these debates that existed so i think even within the history of hinduism we have so many examples rich examples of debates happening and um and this idea that even the same spirit the same ideas can be reformulated for each new generation um, and within a new time and context, um, whether, you know, Shankaracharya in this kind of classical period, we have, you know, other figures like Vivekananda, who in this modern, new, emerging, Indi uh, independent India, um, kind of provided uh, um, the same uh, Vedanta philosophy um, in a new framework uh, and uh, with that kind of new language uh, for for this new new generation. And so I think that um, all of those figures, uh, the, their prominence is a direct reflection of this long tradition of debate and discussion and reformulation of thought. There is a book that um, was uh, really important and that I read uh, probably in high school by um, Amartya Sen. Um, and uh, Amartya Sen is well known as an economist and um, uh, maybe less so as a philosopher, but there's a, a great book he has called The Argumentative Indian. And in that book, um, he talks about um, Indian intellectual history and the Indian civilization and the importance and the history of dialogue and debate in uh, the Indian uh, philosophical tradition and in, in, in the Indian intellectual tradition. And I mean, he's arguing um, that in a democratic society, uh, you know, we debate things and we, we use dialogue to reach conclusions and to decide on policy. And uh, he's arguing that India is suitable for democracy because India um, has one of the most ancient traditions of dialogue and debate. And uh, he provides a lot of examples um, throughout uh, Indian history and, and Hindu uh, philosophy for this type of dialogue and disagreement and um, and how important it is to Hinduism. So this is Amritya Sen, who is the Nobel laureate, uh, economist? That's right. That's right. Okay, so can you tell us about uh, indirect versus direct sources of knowledge? And then uh, correspondingly, uh, giving fish to somebody hungry, the famous adage versus teaching how to fish. So you want to el uh, elaborate on those questions? Yeah, yeah definitely. I think that um, you know, when we talk in the in the uh, uh, in the Hindu tradition about uh, 
epistemology and about, about uh, sources of knowledge and means of knowledge. We use the word uh, uh, pramana. And I think this is a really important concept, not just in a philosophical perspective or not just in a um, you know, Vedanta perspective, but even um, more broadly, um, this idea of pramana, how somebody comes to know something, I think is a really valuable tool um, as an educator um, and as a student and even from a um, you know, marketing perspective almost, right? Because I think that, um, you know, just to give, uh, you know, like a concrete, uh, you know, unrelated modern example, um, if you are thinking about uh, public health and you're thinking about, uh, you know, encouraging people to maybe take the COVID vaccine, there are a lot of people who will respond differently to um, that same information or encouragement based on how it's presented. You know, there are people who you know, um, if Harvard Medical School publishes a study or if um, science or nature or, you know, the um, a top journal publishes a study, that is what will convince them. Then they will say, oh, OK, I, I trust this information. Um, there are there are people who um, will say um, uh, my church leader or my uh, uh, my imam or my priest or my um, uh Pastor, Swami, maybe Swami, he could be Pope, whoever, you know, he is recommending this or he is recommending against this. There are people who, you know, if Donald Trump says uh, you should take the COVID vaccine, they will follow suit. And if he says don't take it, they don't take it, maybe. And so at the same idea, I mean, the same message can, you know, be received um, by different people and different people are amenable to, to learning about that in different ways. There are some kind of ways of communicating that resonate with some people and not with others. And so I think that, um, I think this idea of Pramana, not just in the, you know, a deeper philosophical idea of, um, uh, of uh, uh, you know, reason and intellect uh, versus scriptural authority, but not just outside of that debate, but also in uh, understanding how to teach somebody about Hinduism I think it really helps to know that individual, that child, um, that student, and how it is that they learn. Because um, a certain type of explanation might be more appealing to uh, one mind than a different type of explanation, which might be appealing to another mind. So I think that that is um, really important. And I think that ultimately, um, everyone reaches uh, a certain point in their life when um, they will have to explore for themselves um, and make decisions for themselves uh, and decide, you know, um, uh, what is right and wrong and kind of apply dharma in their own lives. Uh, and it's like you are saying at the end of the Gita, for example, right? It, it, Krishna says, okay, now it's up to you to apply this, to, to make your own decisions um, and uh, apply these insights. And so I think that the way in which you teach about teach Hinduism can really influence how somebody's journey and relationship with it once they leave um, home, once they kind of leave a Balavihar environment or some kind of Gurukulam environment, and they go out for themselves to college or into the workforce, or because I think that there are certain things that you can teach. And if you 
uh, emphasize, you know, memorization or you emphasize, um, uh, you know, reading from certain texts, then that will be the system by which they might, that might become their relationship with Hinduism. Um, and if they rely on, you know, a parent or an elder to answer their questions, uh, their growth may stop with um, the knowledge that that parent or elder has. So I think that a really important thing um, in, in thinking of how we educate young people is giving them the tools to ask the right questions and connecting them with the sources, the right sources of knowledge to get answers to those questions. And so, you know, I talked a little earlier about, um, you know, uh, questioning and doubt and the idea that, oh, if you don't know something, you can direct them to an individual who might know the answer. But, you know, even more generally than that, the idea of, um, uh, you know, in college, I took a, a Sanskrit class. Uh, you know, uh, academically, I enrolled in a, um, a year, um, I, I think, uh, uh, a few semesters of, of Sanskrit. And it's, I think that that did not make me a Sanskrit expert. It did not uh, I did not walk away from that being able to pick up any sutta or pick up any uh, text and immediately be able to understand it. But what it really gave me was practice with being able to look up words that I don't know. Uh, it gave me the tools to take a text that I am not familiar with and be able to decompose it, be able to uh, try to translate it on my own, to go through that exercise. So um, ultimately, I think that, uh, you know, we learn a lot of things in school, like, uh, um, you know, in math and science. And, you know, right now, if you um, asked me to do a problem I learned in high school calculus, I might not be able to replicate the knowledge that I had, uh, you know, um, uh, many years ago. But having been through that process, I can replicate how I learned that. And learning it the second time around will be much faster. And uh, I, I will know how to, how to learn that. And I think that that is the key. It's, it's really teaching people how to get the answer, answers to the questions they have. And I think that um, oftentimes when people get stuck or when they have questions and doubts, but they don't know where to direct them, and uh, they don't know how to resolve them, it can lead people to either give up or it can uh, lead people to get frustrated. Um, and so I think that that can um, uh, either like stifle somebody's uh, um, journey with Hinduism and with um, exploring um, the Dharma, but um, it can also turn people away uh, completely altogether. How true. Uh, education is mostly about how, learning how to learn. Uh, yes, wonderful. And then uh, the last question I want to ask you is that in your view, what are the pros and cons of the fact that there is a lot of intellectual diversity in Hinduism? There are at least uh, six schools of thought and many sub-schools, darshanas and so on. And this may be especially important for NRIs as to which branch of Hinduism, which particular darshana that they should concentrate on and what is the effect of that on their journey? Yeah, so I mean, some of these themes we um, uh, touched on in, in some of the earlier questions. I mean, this this um, this theme of uh, debate and dialogue and discussion, disagreement 
within um, the Hindu uh, tradition, within Indian uh, intellectual history. I think as a result of, of that, you have um, a lot of diversity, both in terms of how people interpret texts um, and uh, the different you know, schools of, of thought, a different Shad uh, um, uh, like you mentioned, um, as well as um, different expressions of uh, the same thought. So even within um, uh, the same uh, school of thought, um, there are, you know, emphasis on uh, bhakti or emphasis on service or, um, uh, you know, uh, particular um, karmas or, or rituals uh, could be um, more focused on jnana yoga, so much diversity in how Hinduism is practiced. And I think that um, that is one of the ultimately very beautiful things about Hinduism. And I think that that is also why it has survived and uh, continues to thrive uh, for after so many thousands of years, um, where so many other religions um, have either, uh, you know, been replaced or um, have uh, become tra transformed in some ways. I think Hinduism has this continuity uh, that goes, uh, that dates so far back um, because it allows uh, for diversity and it allows for um, uh, interpretation uh, and because the, the spirit the spirit of its themes are kind of always present. But I think that for somebody who is um, a student of Hinduism, a student of the Dharma, um, somebody who is um, seeking answers to questions, oftentimes it can be very confusing as well because oftentimes it means that there might be multiple answers to a question, might be multiple different answers to a question. And uh, it, might, it might be also that when you grow up, especially, um, you know, in, in my case in the United States, you may only be exposed to a certain slice of Hinduism based on where you live and the community that is present in that area uh, in my case, I think I benefited a lot from the fact that both my parents individually have different approaches to Hinduism. Uh, and so they both have kind of different flavors, different preferences for how they engage with Dharma. And also we moved around a lot throughout the United States when I was, you know, throughout my childhood. So, um, you know, uh, when I was born, my, my father was a professor and we lived in the Midwest. Um, later, he, he left academia, went into industry. We had lived in New Jersey for a few years, lived in California for a few years. They later moved to Boston. So we had spent a lot of time in different areas. And as a result, um, I was also exposed to different types of communities. So, you know, when we lived in the, in the Midwest, my mom, at, you know, the, the group there was um, uh, an SRF, Self-Realization Fellowship group. So she was part of a, you know, a group where um, you know, they followed uh, Paramahamsa Yogananda. Uh, and so she, you know, learned Kriya Yoga and, and uh, read his books. And then when we moved to New Jersey, you know, in that area, there was a Chinmaya mission and I attended Balvihar there. And, you know, in California, there was uh, different groups. Um, and, you know, later, um, you know, uh, in, uh, after college, you know, I lived um, in a place where Ramakrishna mission was the, the, the center that was nearby. And 
and being exposed to all of those different uh, um, centers, different groups, because each of them have a different flavor of Hinduism, it was able to give me this kind of, you know, um, more rich and diverse perspective also. Because I think that, um, especially, you know, one of the challenges we have at Duke in kind of curating events for the Hindu students here is oftentimes people come, college students come for the first time, uh, they, they're leaving home and they might want to continue uh, their, their traditions. And one of the things that becomes very uh, challenging here is that um, it's almost as if people speak different languages because there are some students that, um, you know, they come from uh, homes where um, they sing bhajans and that uh, and they sing very well and maybe they they learned music and there are other families where, um, you know, it was uh, reading texts and it was uh, Bhagavad Gita and I emphasis on uh, maybe Upanishads or other scriptures. You know, there are families where um, festivals, Hindu festivals are are more of a social gathering and there are um, uh, all sorts of different organizations, different emphases. And, uh, and so I think that being exposed to different, um, you know, in, uh, like I mentioned with my parents, um, you know, my mother um, has really delved deeper into in meditation and um, uh, she has uh, become much more interested, um, um, you know, first in, in um, Advaita Vedanta, but also in, um, in yoga and meditation. And, um, uh, and then, you know, that, that there's a big contrast between, you know, uh, her and my dad and my dad every day will wake up and, um, you know, he will do his, his puja every day. Um, he has a, you know, his own mandir and he will sit and he will chant and he will do a sankalpam every day. And so for him, the idea of uh, maintaining that ritual practice is an essential part of how he practices. And so to be able to just see both of that, you know, the, that contrast, I think it um, was valuable for me. And I think that, that that is something because oftentimes, you know, there is a much bigger question of uh, who is a Hindu or what is a Hindu? What does it mean to be religious? And, you know, I've seen um, in a lot of uh, family, friends and, and other people, um, the idea that, um, oh, you know, there might be someone who um, is not very interested at, or, or religious. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm struck by this conversation where um, an auntie had asked me to talk to her daughter um, and basically said, um, you know, she's not really interested. And, you know, I thought maybe you could talk to her um, and, uh, you know, maybe like inspire her and, and, and so on. And I had a conversation with her and I just asked, you know, what are you majoring in? What are you thinking of studying? And she said, um, oh, okay, like I'm pre-med, but I, you know, I want to study cognitive science or psychology. I'm really interested in, 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 um, in you know, the brain and, um, and how we think and how we perceive things. And ultimately, um, this conversation, which was prompted by her mom saying, oh, maybe you can inspire her to, 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 to learn more about Hinduism or, or think, of, think about, uh, you know, our culture. I ended up having an hour-long uh, discussion with her about um, the Mandakya Upanishad. She didn't realize we were having a conversation about Mandakya Upanishad because, I mean, she might not have the language to talk about it that way. But, you know, I asked her, why are you interested in cognitive science? Why are you interested in psychology? And she talked to me about dreams. She talked to me about, 
oh, how do you know what's real? How do you perceive things? You know, when we talk about color, what does that mean? You know, uh, do I see red the same as how you see red? Um, and ultimately, you know, she's asking the same questions about um, what is Maya, what is real, what is um, Satya, what is Asatya? Um, something that we experience, can we know it to be true? How do I know whether I am the perceiver? How do you distinguish between the perceived and the perceiver? I mean, all of these are fundamental questions that, you know, oftentimes we think, oh, it's, you know, too advanced for kids, right? Or uh, we think that um, it's beyond what people are interested in. And then the, re the reality is a lot of people who, um, you know, their parents might think, oh, they're not interested um, in Hinduism. It might just be because they have a different either learning style, they, they resonate with a different expression of Hinduism, or it might simply be that there is a, a language barrier. I mean, that, that the same concepts when presented um, in English uh, without all of the trappings of devotion and culture um, and, you know, Sanskrit um, appeal to them in a way that um, it might not appeal to them if um, it's associated with getting up early in the morning to go to some Sunday school uh, and have to, you know, get shunted by their parents or, you know, what have you. So I think that um, um, oftentimes, you know, a lot of Western movies um, that are very popular science fiction movies, they're, they're really expressing the same types of themes that, you know, um, the uh, Vedanta talks about. So I think that um, these ideas really resonate with people, um, whether they are Hindu or not, uh, whether they are Indian or not, whether they are atheist, Christian, agnostic, whatever you want to call it, I think that, you know, every person asks at some point in their life, why was I born? Who am I? What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What should I do? I mean, these are questions that inevitably every person asks. And I think that, you know, one of the ways that humans cope with that is just to keep yourself so busy that you don't have to uh, face those questions. Um, you distract yourself with, you know, consuming um, things or being busy enough that you, you don't let your mind wander there. Sometimes because those questions can be tough, right? And they can be hard and, and thinking about those things, you know, can be like disheartening. And so sometimes we fill our lives with stuff to avoid those questions. But I think the mind naturally gravitates towards those questions. And I think part of the importance of religion and Hinduism uh, in an individual's life is to provide a, a healthy uh, avenue to handle those questions. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good point that uh, if you use the right language to communicate with the young ones, you will get to them. But yeah, this has been a fabulous conversation, fascinating one. And thank you very much, uh, Prabhu uh, and uh, Hari Om. Hari Om, Dr. Vedi. <laughs>